Good morning. I'm sure some folks are horrified by the announcements of no nursery, um, but twice already today I've had the opportunity to get the giggles and smile because the little ones are with us. So uh, I thank the Lord for that. Now we might all feel differently by the time the sermon is over. Uh, so we'll pray for one another there. Well, after spending some fruitful time in the servant songs of Isaiah during our Advent season, today we resume this combined study that we've been in in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this being the opening message of a new book for us, the book of Nehemiah, uh, we have our work cut out for us. So we'll have to roll up our sleeves and get right to it. And unless everyone happens to have memorized that opening sermon for Ezra, where we laid out uh, in depth the background material, uh, a brief review might prove helpful today. Unless, do I need to get a show of hands? Who, who all memorized that first opening sermon? I preached it and I didn't memorize it, so it's okay. So we need some review. So let's do a bit of that uh, as we get into this today. Ezra and Nehemiah are divided in our Bibles, our Protestant Bibles, into two books. However, in the Hebrew uh, scroll, they were one book together up until the time of the printing press. So they were viewed, Ezra and Nehemiah, as one continuous book. Traditionally, Ezra the priest has been credited with uh, chronicling First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, and having been the author of a large percentage of, the, of those books of the Bible. Actually, Ezra had a whole lot to do with the final arrangement of the Old Testament. That's an interesting study uh, in itself. And a significant portion of the book of Nehemiah that we're starting today is written by Nehemiah in the first person. It's sometimes called Nehemiah's memoir. And there are other parts that were written by a narrator that we take it to be Ezra. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah also uh, have a really important role in biblical history. So they carry forth the unfolding story of God's redemption of his people. Together, they span a, about 138 years from 538 B.C. to about 400 B.C., and I'll quiz you on that this afternoon. Make sure you have your dates down. Uh, it covers the period of six Persian kings, four of them are mentioned in these, in these books, and uh, what they're doing in the course of chronicling God's history of redemption is they cover three restoration efforts. Three efforts take place in these two books. You remember Israel and Judah had been taken into exile. Judah into exile in Babylon, and we at the end of that period of time, there began these restoration efforts to go back to the land of promise and to rebuild. And so the first was in Ezra chapters 1 through 6, with the return in 538 B.C. under the leadership of Zerubbabel, and they went back to rebuild the temple. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah had a lot to do with encouraging that work, uh, and helping motivate them to finish the building of the temple, which took place in 560 B.C. Eighty years after that first group, a second restoration effort comes. That's Ezra 7 through 10. 
And that's where the priest Ezra himself returns with a group of people. And their, their effort was to reestablish the Mosaic Covenant and rebuild the Israelite community on the Word of God, to get back to the covenant faithfulness with the Lord, to get back to living according to the Scriptures. And this ministry of Ezra is ongoing as Nehemiah begins. It actually goes deep into the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah and their efforts overlap one another. So we'll see Ezra again as we go along. And then finally, the third restoration effort under Nehemiah himself. He comes over as governor 14 years after Ezra's return trip. And he comes first to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in the city and in certain uh, aspects, the uh, economy and the daily life of the city. Uh, that's chapters 1 to 12. And then once more he returns again in chapter 13 to deal with some ongoing troubles among those not-so-faithful people. Malachi's ministry overlaps this time frame, so maybe it would be helpful to go read Malachi a few times while we're making our way through Nehemiah. Now, each of these three return efforts was by the order of a Persian king and with the provision of the Persian royal treasury. Each of them was hotly opposed by the people of the land that had been living in the region while exile was taking place. And then at each point, God's gracious hand of provision for the work is seen as the restoration work continues. So Ezra and Nehemiah, like I says, biblical history of the works of the Lord in restoring his people, restoring his wayward, exiled people. It's the story of his covenant faithfulness. When we're reading this stuff, have your eyes open for God and you'll see his faithfulness all over these pages. It's the story of his faithfulness and redeeming love towards those unworthy of it. And that brings all the way home for us too, doesn't it? And both, uh, both of these themes, his covenant faithfulness, his mercy to redeem, they both show up in our passage today. So from the very beginning, it's a focused theme in Nehemiah. And this is also, these two books are the story of God's sovereign might as he directs the rise and the fall of nations, as he directs the, the will of pagan rulers and emperors to accomplish his own good purposes. So you see God's might on display as we work through these books. All along the way, through the ups and the downs, the Lord is at work on behalf of his people, calling them back to himself, providing for their needs in times of distress, and preserving a faithful remnant for himself. And it's through that faithful remnant that Messiah would come. So this is our story. This is our history in Ezra and Nehemiah. As always, uh, more could be said there, but we have a whole chapter to cover today, so we must move on. And if you're not already there, please join me in Nehemiah chapter 1 in your copy of the Word of God. There's also Bibles in the pocket in front of you if you need a copy to follow along. Before we read the Scriptures, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Our Lord and our God, the great and awesome God, there is none like you. 
And Lord, we are your people by the grace you've shown us in Christ. And we pray that you would speak this morning. As I've already been encouraged today, we need the Holy Spirit behind this pulpit. We need to hear from you. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to to behold wonders in your word. I pray you'd open our ears to hear the truth. I pray that you would help me with clarity of thought and speech to bring forth your message for your people to the glory of your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. In our passage today, we see what it looks like to trust the covenant faithfulness of the Lord and his mercy to redeem those who turn to him in repentance. We also see true humble repentance exemplified these come to us they're presented to us through the excellent example of nehemiah's prayer so my prayer for us today is that the lord might help us also to trust the faithfulness of our god and his mercy to redeem those who come to him in repentance through faith in jesus christ may he shape us by the humble repentance modeled for us in this text. 
This chapter divides into two portions, and so after uh, a brief intro into Nehemiah himself, the balance of our study will divide along those same lines, uh, those being a report concerning the remnant in the holy city, that's verses 1 to 3, and a prayerful response to troubling news, verses 4 through 11. So let's begin there first with that brief introduction to the man, Nehemiah. Who is Nehemiah? It's a name we hear often in church circles anyway, but who is he? Well, we learn a few things about him right away here in chapter 1. He was the son of Hakaliah, who is mentioned also in chapter 10, verse 1, but otherwise it's mentioned nowhere in the scriptures, so that doesn't give us a whole lot of family history and background. We see that he's a God-fearing Jew who remained behind after the first two returns to Judah under Zerubbabel and under Ezra. There's different speculations as to why that may be the case, uh, but nonetheless, he's still there in exile. Uh, Verse 1 tells us that he was in Susa, the citadel, which stood in what is now western Iran, modern-day Iran. And geographically, Susa lies about... 225 miles or so east of Babylon and is considered one of the oldest known settlements in the world. That's interesting to me. Uh, You might recognize it as the setting for the book of Esther. If you've read that one lately, it takes place in Susa. And so that book lets us know that there's a considerable Jewish population in that place during that time. Susa was one of the several royal Persian residences According to commentator Derek Kidner, it was the winter resort of the Persian kings. And so this is taking place approximately mid-November to mid-December. We'll get into that later. And so the king is at his winter resort in Susa, and Nehemiah is there with him. Verse 1 says it's the month of Kislev in the 20th year of the reign of the king. And so this is late in the year the 20th year of his reign, and then uh, he, you may remember, is the same king that sent Ezra on his second return in the first place. So he was reigning then, he's still reigning now, Uh, Ezra is still at work rebuilding the community, so this is close in time to each other. So what was Nehemiah doing there? Why was he there in this royal metropolis, this royal uh, palace? Uh, in Susa. Well, verse 11, and again in chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that he was cupbearer to the king. Now this, you probably will recognize that position from the time of Joseph in in Egypt and Pharaoh's cupbearer, but it seems like for the Assyrians, cupbearers were a little bit more honored. They held an honored, trusted position in the kingdom, and he was the one who would place the food and drink into the hand of the king himself after sampling it in the king's presence to make sure it was free from poison. You know, there was a constant uh, threat of assassination for those kings of old. And because of that, they would not take a drink of anything unless it was put into their hand by the cupbearer. I suppose there was scarcely a more trusted position in the whole kingdom. This was the position in which the sovereign Lord had placed his servant, Nehemiah, 
a trusted position with direct access to the king of the empire, which God would soon use for the good of his people. He'd done this before. Our minds go to Joseph and Moses in Egypt or to Obadiah in Ahab's court in Israel or to Daniel in Babylon or to Esther in Mordecai in an earlier generation for an earlier king in Persia. Now let's take a look at this report that Nehemiah gets. He receives a report concerning the remnant in Judah and of the holy city Jerusalem there in verses 1 through 3. Let's pick up in verse 2. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So there is Nehemiah. He's carrying out his duties in this extravagant royal citadel, and the Persians were known for their extravagance, their, their wealth, the luxury that they enjoyed. So he's in this very extravagant place. And his brother Hanani comes with some others, and they've shown up after returning from a trip to Jerusalem. And like Moses, who though he grew up in Pharaoh's palace, he was still concerned with the burdens of his people, Nehemiah, too, was eager to hear the welfare of the people and of the city. How are the Jews who had escaped from exile? How is Jerusalem, the city where God had shown or has made his great name to dwell? And God has shown himself to be mighty in so many of the old stories. How are they doing? And the reply that he receives shocks him. Yes, it's true that the temple had been rebuilt and true worship had been reestablished. And yes, it's true that the community was continuing to benefit from receiving the renewed ministry of the scriptures under Ezra's leadership. Yet, the city of Jerusalem, the former glory of David's kingdom, continued broken down and destroyed by fire. And God's chosen people, Israel, were in great trouble and shame. They were dejected. They were without a wall. They were exposed to the dangers of their enemies. Commentators suggest to us here that the reason why this is so shocking, so alarming to Nehemiah is because this is new news. This isn't the old news of the city being destroyed and left by Babylon more than a century earlier. You might remember Ezra went over with the king's blessing to reestablish the community, and it appears as though between the time that Ezra left and the time that this report comes in, that the city, they had, they had actually tried to start a rebuilding process for Jerusalem. Uh, you may recall in Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 through 23, a letter was sent to Artaxerxes, the same king, accusing the Jews of rebellion. And in the letter it says, We make note to the king that, this city is, that if this city is rebuilt and its wall is finished, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So there was an effort 
to rebuild that had taken place. And in reply, Artaxerxes ordered the work on the city to be stopped. And the officials, it says in Ezra 4.23, went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. And so when Nehemiah hears the grim report of this relatively new opposition, this yet another round of opposition that the people faced and the ruinous results, uh, evidently the efforts that they had put in had been burned and broken down again. This resultant shame that was with it, all of this stunned Nehemiah, and he wept and he mourned. And I wonder how God's people in Jerusalem felt. They were no longer in exile, but it was almost worse because they were back in the land of promise, facing relentless opposition the whole time. One thing after another after another. Things going wrong. And when it's bad enough, here it comes another wave again. And how overwhelming it must have been for them to dwell in the ruins of the promised land where the stories of God's mighty acts for Israel had taken place. I went one time to Rome when I was in the Navy, and I got to go tour the Colosseum and some of those old Roman structures. And you just try to envision and you look at the artist's depictions of what it might have looked like and what it might have been like and all the grandeur there. But then you see it now in all of that, <clears throat> that uh, extravagance, all of that, uh, those great stories of Rome and the power and all that stuff. It's just nothing but crumbled down rocks on top of one another. A scornful heap of ruin. And it seems like it was that way for them. Is this what it feels like to be God forsaken? Had God forsaken his covenant people? They're back where it all took place and it wasn't happening. Or it didn't appear that way anyways. I wonder if you've ever tasted something of that despondency. The terrible news that he received. And the crushing weight of that seemed to settle on Nehemiah. As we read his response now, we're moving to our third heading, the prayerful response for troubled news, or to troubled news. Let's look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So on, on hearing this distressing report, Nehemiah did not respond with indifference to the sufferings of his people. His life was posh in the, in the citadel, nearly a thousand miles away from all those troubles. But he did not have his nose in the air. He wasn't indifferent. He didn't shrug it off. He was deeply grieved at the news that God's people were in shame and that the city's uh, abiding ruin continued, the city where the Lord's name dwelled. And so he sat, and he wept, and he mourned, and he fasted for days and days, and he prayed for extended periods of time. Uh, upwards of four months, I gather, because uh, the time of Kislev, there in chapter 1, verse 1, that's the ninth month on the Jewish calendar, and the uh, 
first month, Nisan, there in chapter 2, verse 1, the first month of the next year of the Jewish calendar. That's about four months. And it was during that whole period of time that he fasted and prayed and mourned over this report. It's not momentary displeasure that he feels, but deep offense and discouragement. And that, that uh, jumps right into my face, because I wonder if we Christians in posh, safe, comfortable America respond the same way to the reports of the sufferings of our brethren across the globe. Are we indifferent? Are we too busy to be bothered with that sort of thing? Are we too distracted with our toys to grieve over the suffering of God's people? Well, during these months, Nehemiah continues in prayer, prayer to the Lord about the situation. And what we have in the, the rest of this chapter here is uh, kind of like a summary of all of it. Kind of like, this is the heart of what I've been praying over that period of time. As a side note, good Bible study practice for you. Go home and study the prayers of repentance of Nehemiah here and of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, and of Ezra in Ezra chapter 9, and then again later in the book of Nehemiah, uh, more prayers of repentance. We have much to learn from these brothers, much to learn from these examples for our own prayers, that ours might be informed by the scriptures the way theirs was. Well, I'd like for us to take note of four elements of Nehemiah's prayer as we move through here. And the first one is this, that he begins with praise hallowing the name of the Lord there in verse 5 notice how he begins and I said O Lord God of heaven the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments when Jesus was asked by his disciples Lord teach us to pray the same way that John has taught his disciples to pray Jesus said this he said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And so also Nehemiah, he doesn't approach the Holy One and the creator of the universe with a cavalier attitude or a list of demands for the Lord to feel as if he's a genie just waiting to do his bidding. Rather, he begins by recognizing the exalted reality of God Almighty and his own lowliness in relation to God. And then he conducts himself accordingly in prayer. He reflects upon the majesty of God, and this orients his perspective aright long before he ever makes any requests for any needs that they have. And only later does he ask for help, uh, particular help with uh, him and what he's going to do before the king. I dare say we have something to learn here about our own attitudes in prayer. I know I can sense a difference when I come to the Lord with just hardly a, a previous thought and then when I come before the Lord properly, recognizing His holiness. This leads Nehemiah then, upon reflecting on the holiness of God, it leads him to repentance, just like it did with Isaiah. Remember that? Isaiah? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And how did he respond? Woe is me. Recognizing the holiness of the Lord, coming before him 
in humility and repentance. So the second element of this prayer is he, le- he pleads for an audience with the Holy One, immediately confessing his sins, verses 6 and 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So like Daniel and Ezra before, he speaks in these corporate terms. He's addressing the Lord and he's speaking about the sins of Israel, the people. And then he starts saying we, and then he says I. This corporate terms, confessing corporate sins and personal sins of himself and his family. He lays it bare in open confession. No hiding, no sugarcoating, no excuses. We are corrupt and have not obeyed your commandments. You know, David prayed very similarly when he was repenting before the Lord in Psalm 51. He said in 51, 3 and 4, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No sugarcoating. Confessing it plainly. I've done what is evil. Turn to the left a page or two to Ezra chapter 9. And let's see uh, another example there with Ezra. It's Ezra chapter 9. This is upon hearing about the unfaithfulness of the people and their intermarriage that took place. And Ezra 9 verse 3 and following. He says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. And on and on he goes to the rest of the same chapter. God had not forsaken his people. That was not why they were in ruins they had forsaken him they had sinned and nehemiah confesses this sin and repents do you and i know anything of this sort of repentance this sort of grief this sort of guilt before divine holiness do we know anything of this i pray that we do If you're a believer, then at least at some point in your life, you've been brought to this point. 
of conviction of sin. I pray that we're brought under this great weight and burden and guilt of sin, that godly grief that leads to repentance, the New Testament says. And in the midst of that, our own guilt, I hope maybe the Lord is helping you to reflect on your own sin. He's helping me even now. In the midst of that, brothers and sisters and friends who are visiting, there is good news. I'm telling you, there is good news for those who are guilty sinners before God. For the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. And for those who look to Jesus in repentance and faith, the scriptures say there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So feel the weight and the guilt of sin before God. Then turn to Christ Jesus. Flee to him in repentance and faith. And find in him that joyful relief from condemnation. The third element of his prayer here as we continue, is that he appeals to the covenant faithfulness of God. He starts his prayer by saying, O Lord, all caps, O Lord God of heaven, that's the covenant name of God indicated there. And then in verses 8 and 9, he continues, Remember the word that, your commandment, uh, that you commanded to your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah, what he's doing here is he's quoting the scriptures. He's quoting Deuteronomy, several places in Deuteronomy, including Deuteronomy 9.29 and Deuteronomy 30 verses 1 to 5. He's quoting the scriptures as he intercedes for the people, very much like Moses had done. And in so doing, he's appealing to that covenant faithfulness of God, grounding his prayers in God's promises from the scripture and then applying them contextually to their need. You see, Nehemiah learned how to pray from the Bible, and he was praying the very words of God. So questions arise in my mind, are your prayers in mind biblically literate prayers? Do the scriptures guide our hearts and our minds when we come to the Lord and open our lips and speak to him? Are we guided by the scriptures? Nehemiah, he saw in the scriptures the covenant faithfulness of God. He saw that uh, the ruin was because of God's covenant faithfulness to his promise to his threat of exile but he also saw the Lord's mercy to forgive that same abiding faithfulness his mercy to forgive those who repent and in reflecting upon them he quoted that promise if you return to me I will gather you how might we plead for God's mercy when we pray when we're repenting of our own sins and guilt well, again, we might go back to David's words in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. He said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. There's that covenant reflection on his covenant faithfulness again. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We might learn how to plead for this mercy from Daniel, who said in Daniel 9, 16, and following, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. We might also pray the promise in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And y'all, those are words sinners should never expect to be able to hear. That God would forgive. That the Holy One would pardon and it happens because of Jesus you can be forgiven because he died for you and oh the joy that we can have in the midst of guilt for sin repenting to God knowing the promise that if we confess our sins he's faithful to forgive thanks be to God for Jesus there's a fourth element here this final one he extols the Lord as he requests his aid with the king, verses 10 and 11. They, it says, They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now it's cupbearer to the king. So only now does Nehemiah start to make his request for the Lord's help in a specific need. And what exactly he meant in this request is going to be worked out for us in chapter 2, and Lord willing we'll cover that next week. There is one thing, though, that's striking to me about this particular prayer that he prays. And the way that he closes it. Why did Nehemiah use the words, in the sight of this man? He's referring to the most powerful man on the planet. King Artaxerxes, ruler at that time of the most powerful empire on the planet. And he says, give your servant success today in the sight of old boy over there. Why did he talk like that? I know as the cupbearer, he never would have dared address the king in such a way. And in chapter 2, we're going to see his demeanor in the presence of the king. And it's not nearly so cavalier or so uh, looking as though the king is just nobody. So why does he pray like that? Well, I think it's because he realizes to whom he is praying. 
and with and in comparison to him, Artaxerxes really is just old boy over there. He really is an unimpressive man. Biblical prayer aligns his perspective with the greatness of God. And just like our call to worship that was read to us earlier in Psalm 47, it says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. It continues, For God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. For the shields of the earth belong to the Lord. He is highly exalted. The Lord God is king. He is the king of all kings. Artaxerxes, he's just a man. And one day he'll die and there'll be another one. Another little king to reign. But the Lord God sits on the throne and forever and ever he reigns exalted as king of kings. So Nehemiah's hope was not in this man. His hope and his confidence were in the Lord, who is Lord over all lords, who can be trusted for his covenant faithfulness and for his mercy to redeem those who turn to him in repentance. The sort of biblical repentance modeled for us in this prayer today. May God do his work in our hearts through this passage. Let's bow together for prayer. And Lord, after reading your word this morning and seeing the example we've seen, it's hard to find courage to speak to you and to know what to say. For you're so great, the great and awesome God, Nehemiah said, the God who is faithful to the covenant, faithful to his people, the God in whom we can find mercy for those who repent and trust in Christ. So I pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit through this word in Jesus' name. Amen.